want to welcome you. If you're a guest with us or you would call New Hope your church home, would you do me a favor? Would you grab that Connect card that's in the seat back in front of you? Here's why. We've noticed that when we do not ask for that Connect card to be filled out, guess what happens? It doesn't get filled out. And we love when it gets filled out, particularly for this reason. Uh, our elders meet on Saturday mornings, and we meet to pray. Like, that's why we gather, and we love being able to pray for you and your family. And so you can fill out the front of that card. Let us know where you'd like more information about the church. But when you flip the card over and you fill out the back of that card, you can put your prayer requests on it. And then we can know how we can be praying for you and your family, especially during this Christmas season. So take a moment and fill that out for me. And you can do it right now because I'm going to fill you in on two other uh, announcements. Uh, one is beginning January the 9th, uh, Wednesday nights at 6.30 in the morning. 6.30 in the evening, I'm sorry. <laughs> 6.30 in the morning, sure. That, I don't know what I'm thinking. Uh, six, it's been a long week, all right? I've got to preach two Christmas sermons, people. Uh, so 6.30 in the evening, Wednesday nights, Ryan King, our student minister, and myself are going to be teaching a 10-week course on worldview. Uh, it's going to be right here in this room. We want to invite you to come and to be a part of that. And we're going to be walking through how should Christians view the world, what's the lens, defining the lens by which we filter our experiences, and then how do we engage a culture that does not share our worldview. And so 10 weeks, and we're inviting everybody to come. The only reason you have to get online and register is if you're bringing kids. So we can plan for child care. If, you, if you're not registering kids to come, you can just show up, and we would love to have you. The second announcement is for tomorrow, uh, our Christmas Eve services. Um, so they're going to be different than this morning, um, and we want to invite you to come and be a part of that. And so tomorrow, 4 o'clock, 5.30, and 7 o'clock in the evening, not the morning, um, we would love for you and your family, your friends, to join us as we gather together and celebrate Christmas uh, as a church family. So make plans to join us. Please make note that the 7 o'clock service tomorrow, 7 o'clock in the evening, uh, there's no child care. And so your children will come in here uh, with you, or you can come uh, to the 4 o'clock or 5.30 and keep your sanity. So uh, we would love to have you and welcome you to be a part of that. Hey, let me pray for us, and then we will uh, get into Colossians chapter 1. Father, thank you for being here with us this morning. Thank you for your presence with us. And God, we're about to open your word, and we do not take that lightly. We believe that you can teach us that because of our studying, understanding, and listening to your word, we can be different than we were before. You can shape us and you can mold us as we come to understand what you're teaching us through your word. And so, Father, our prayer this morning is that when we are weak, would you make us strong? When we need clarity, would you offer it to us? Would you make clear to us what you want us to learn from your word this morning? And so we offer you as a church family these next few moments in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't know if this series in Colossians 1, it's a, a bit of a unique Christmas series, uh, has challenged you the way that it's challenged me, but I've really loved it. It's actually, uh, I think, brought some depth to the Christmas season for me uh, this year. A lot of reflecting going on for me this year. I am finishing, uh, so January 1st, I'll start my 11th year on staff here at the church. So I'm finishing 10 years on staff at the church. That naturally brings about um, a lot of reflecting at the end of a year like that. And so as, as we're coming to the end of this 10th year of ministry here, I'm, I'm really reflecting quite a bit on my time here at New Hope. And one of the lessons that has been um, probably most prominent as I reflect on this time is that our choices... The decisions that we make, big or small, have power. You see, it's, it's under the umbrella of God's 
sovereignty, but he really gives us the ability to make choices that have impact all around us. And so naturally, I'm thinking over the last 10 years and some of the choices that I've made that do two things. One, uh, make me wonder how I still have a job. And two, make me really appreciate the patience and grace of this church family for all that you've put up with as I've been able to mature and grow. Like, it's been pretty incredible. Uh, but first service, I shared this. I remember one of the poor choices that I made early on here when I was a student minister. Uh, Ryan doesn't make these kind of choices, uh, but I did. And uh, I had, we had this old, broke-down air hockey table. And I had the bright idea that we would get the students out in the parking lot and we would destroy this air hockey table. Some of them are here and they're shaking their head, yeah, I remember that, right? And so I thought, let's get sledgehammers. Always good in student ministry to have sledgehammers, right? We get the air hockey table out there, the kids are destroying it, and I call on one of the adult leaders, Nancy Van Clay, sweetest lady you'll ever meet in your life. And I said, Nancy, you should do this. And she's like, oh, I'm good. I may or may not have pressured her into it. And then handed her the super short hammer instead of one that's longer. And so she swung at this air hockey table, missed it, and hit herself in the leg. And I thought, hey, Sarah, go ahead and pack our bags. I just lost my job. Uh, and she's fine. She actually laughed at me in first service for it. She still laughs at me for that very poor decision. And then we had Jay Fruits come running up and jump on the table. And I thought, this is like not a good idea. Why did I choose to do this at all? I remember uh, other choices that I made here at New Hope, in particular, the first time in my entire life I ever got to preach Easter. It's a big deal when you're a young preacher. And my father-in-law graciously said, hey, let's preach this together. We'll tag team the Easter sermon this year. And I thought, man, I'm nervous and I'm scared, but okay. And so I get up to preach the first time Easter, and I'm up here, and I'm probably sitting right about here, and he's on that side, and we're going back and forth preaching the sermon. And I was supposed to close the sermon out. It was my job to finish the sermon, and I, like, I forgot. And so he looks over at me, and he kind of indicates, and in that moment, I did what you should never do from this stage when it's your first time preaching Easter. And I looked out at everybody, and I said, I'm sorry, everybody, brain fart. And that's exactly what they all did. And I looked, made the mistake of looking right around here, because this is about where Pete Stewart sits. And his eyes got so big. And after the service, he slowly made his way up, came all the way up on the stage, and came right up to me, and he said, you could have said anything, except for that word. And then he walked away. And I thought, uh, choices, right? We all have choices. Big, small, they impact us. I like the way Crawford Loritz explains the power of our choices. He says this, every single thing in your life that will happen of significance will be the product of your choices and decisions. I think that I found that to be true in my life, not just in ministry, but in my life in general, that my choices have impacts. Small, large, important, seemingly not important choices. Every decision that we make under the sovereignty of God, he understands it all, he is still God, but he has given us the ability to make choices in our life. Maybe you saw uh, the video of a Boston firefighter who's decided every year at Christmas time to choose to help other people with their joy. So he dresses up as Buddy the Elf. Most firefighters are 24 hours on, 48 hours off, and during those 48 hours off, he gets two pillows and he walks around the streets of Boston and he has pillow fights with people. And he says the decision to do it. Some of them are awesome. Uh, some people, like this girl, is so extremely uncomfortable with it. And I can understand that. Like, I can understand why, right? This one's my favorite, actually, where this lady, he comes up to this older lady, she says, hold this, and I'm, this dude's done, right? 
So lots of fun, right? But his, his whole purpose in this, and he clocks her, yeah. His whole purpose is he wants to help other people make the choice to have joy during the Christmas season. That's it. So he's just going to do his part. Because he understands what I've come to understand. Our choices have power. They have the power to influence our life and the lives of the people that are around us. Every day we make choices. Every day you choose when you get up what you're going to eat for breakfast, if you're going to eat breakfast, what you're going to wear, where you're going to go. You're going to, you choose what school you want to go to, what degree you're going to pursue, what job you're going to have. You choose who you're going to hang out with, who you're going to date, ultimately who you're going to marry. Every one of these choices has an impact on your life. And I've found that to be true in my life as well. One of the best decisions I ever made was to marry my wife, Sarah. And every year that's proved to be an even better decision, year after year after year. Man, I can't believe that that was one of the best choices I've ever made in my entire life. We got married right here on this stage. It looked a little different then, but we got married right up here, June 2nd, 2006. And, and it's not always easy, right? Choices you have to make are not always easy, but we've decided through some of the more difficult times in our marriage and some of the more joyful times in our marriage to view all of these other decisions under the umbrella of that first decision, to stay committed to each other in a covenant relationship with one another. We look back at that covenant relationship and we say, based on that decision, I want to make sure all my other decisions are influenced because of that one decision and year in and year out, good times and bad, difficult times, joyful times, where we're not sure and when we are sure, when it has to do with us and our relationship with our kids, with our jobs, everything that we're doing, we're going to view it under that idea that, hey, we made this one big decision that has to influence all of these other decisions. Choices. They're very, very important. I think many of us take them too lightly. We underestimate the power of our choices and decisions. I want you to keep all of that in mind as we jump into Colossians chapter 1 and we finish up this series on Colossians chapter 1. So we've looked at this letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to the church at Colossae for the last three weeks. This church that needed a reminder, they needed to be uh, reinforced as to who Jesus was. And so we're going to read the verses that were already read for us. We're going to revisit them. Chapter 1, verse 15. Here's what Paul writes to the church. He says, He, Jesus, He's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authority. All things were created through him and for him. So he was there before creation. He was a part of creation. Everything was created for him, but it was also created by him. So he was there in the beginning. He, he is God. This is what the claim is making. He is God. He's in control. He helped create everything. He says, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. You remember what we talked about with this, whether he was creating the universe and holding all the universe together, all the stars he holds in place. And what many people call chaos, we call, no, that's creation held in place by the creator. We would look at our own personal lives and say, there's so much chaos going on in my life, especially during this Christmas season with everything going on in my family. And he would say, no, if Jesus is your savior, he can hold all of that together too. He holds all things together. He is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. And in everything, that in everything, he might be preeminent. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on, heaven, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. So he's making a case that Jesus is the center and the focus of everything. And he is. 
easier said than done. Our choices, is what he's saying, must be made in view of this truth that he is the center of it all. And then he narrows it down even more. And this is such a beautiful passage, especially for Christmas, when he gets to verses 19 and 20 and he says this, for in him, in Jesus, in that child that was born to come and rescue us, in him, in that baby, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And so what he's saying is Jesus was fully a baby and David walked us through that beautifully last week, that he had all the constraints of humanity placed on him, but simultaneously in him, all the fullness of God, fullness, let me translate that word for you. Fullness means fullness, complete, whole. Everything about God was pleased to dwell inside Jesus. He is God. And for this purpose, that through him, through what he would grow up to do, and many of us, we go right to the cross, and we should. But you understand that on the cross, there was a perfect sacrifice. Meaning, from the moment he was born to the moment he died on the cross, he lived a perfect, sinless life. And every decision that he made, every choice that he made in his life was perfect. Let that sink in. That through him, through this perfect life that was lived, this unjust death that was endured, and then the resurrection from the dead that conquered the enemy for us, that through that, he might reconcile all things to himself, making peace in your life and in all of creation by the blood that was shed on the cross, the sacrifice that was made on the cross for you, provides you with a peace that nothing else can give you. But there's this one word, that I haven't been able to get away from as I've studied this text, preparing for today. And it's the word reconcile. See, when God sent Jesus, he wanted to reconcile. So this idea of reconciliation. To be reconciled means that something was broken. In order for something to need to be reconciled, something had to sever this relationship. It's a relational term that there was this wholeness Something happened, and now there is a need for reconciliation. You've experienced this in your own life. When people lie about you, when they cheat you, when they gossip about you, when a close friend, uh, quote-unquote, stabs you in the back. All of these different things that happen in your life, you've experienced the pain of a severed relationship in some way, shape, or form. You've experienced this pain, and you know that in order for that relationship to be repaired, there must be some sort of reconciliation. This is why it's fresh on my mind. Let me get somewhat vulnerable with you. And I apologize. Some of you know my story. Some of you don't. But studying this text, you'll see the comparison with what's been going on in my life really for six weeks, but it culminated this week. My dad was shot and killed by a 17-year-old when I was a little boy. It's very difficult. The person that did this, the kid at the time that did this, was convicted and put in prison. And on Monday, due to some changes in the laws in Florida, it was decided that he would be released from prison. And so I've spent Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday in a fog. I was st- I'm the preacher in Indiana studying Florida law, <laughs> trying to understand the changes that took place, really diving deep into how laws work and why they work a certain way and why the changes that happened because of the midterm elections, all of it, and you're just diving into it. And I'm like, I still got to write two Christmas sermons. And then the Lord really blessed me with the passage that I happened to be preaching, but all of that came to me to really wrestle with the whole concept of law. Like, why does it work the way it does? Why, what's the purpose of it? How is it different in certain circumstances? And I'm going to generalize this for us today, but this idea of reconciliation boils down to our understanding of the law, and I want to 
look at two different things, human law and divine law, to help us kind, kind of try to come to understand the depth of this word and really the depth of this passage this Christmas season. And so the idea of a, a human law, let's just explore our human laws in a very general sense. What is the purpose of human law? I would say this, that the purpose of human law is to maintain a peaceful relationship with other human beings. So the reason that we institute laws is to create and more often than not maintain peace among people. We want people to treat each other a certain way. And so the purpose of the law is to create and maintain peace among human beings. This is why we oftentimes will change laws that don't create peace or no longer create peace among human beings. And we explore this and we get very political about it. But at its core, the purpose of law is to create peace among people. Second thing would be this then that I wrestled with is, what, if that's the purpose of the law, what's the very content of the law? What's the purpose of the content of the law? And I would say this, the content or the call or the demand of law is to treat other human beings as human beings. And so the specifics of the law would be, we're instituting this human law so that you would treat these other humans a certain way. And so this law specifically speaks to how you treat this person in this circumstance. That's the purpose of human law. That's the content of the law. The content shapes how we treat one another. That's why we have laws. You've seen this play out in the movies or in literature. When we remove law from a society, what's left is chaos. That's, that's, what's, that's what happens. You take, you've seen it in movies play out, like let's remove this law, and then chaos ensues. In order to have a civil society, you have to have laws that are purposed and written so that people will treat one another a certain way. And so with that, naturally comes the consequences to human laws. When you break a human law, that consequence or, or the, the, the reprimand for breaking a human law is that now you have this unreconciled relationship between you and the person in whom you've committed that crime. And so when a crime is committed, humanly speaking, the person who committed it now has a unreconciled relationship with the victim of that crime. Not only the victim, but you know this, and you've experienced this and seen this. It's never just the victim. It's the family of the victim and the community at large that now there is this unreconciled divide between the, the person who's committed the crime and the victims of that crime. That's the way that human law works. And that's the consequence for it. And on top of that, we understand that some crimes that break the law you can't simply come and say, I'm sorry, because now there's a debt that needs to be paid in order to try to create reconciliation. Okay? It's the whole purpose of it. I'm generalizing it, so bear with me. So you can't just say, I'm sorry, and then walk away from it. No, that now there is a debt that must be paid to try, at some level, to create some sort of reconciliation between those who have been hurt and the one who created the hurt. Right? Oftentimes that means you can't just say, I'm sorry, now you have to go to jail and you have to serve a certain term in jail in order to try, at best, to create this reconciliation. Now this is how human law works. So as I'm wrestling through this, thinking about Christmas, we'll get there, I promise, we all have these choices to make. See, the law is instituted and we can choose to obey that law or break that law. When we choose to obey that law, there's peace. When we choose to disobey that law, there's consequences. And now a debt must be paid in order to cover the consequence of the breaking of that law. Now, what about divine law? How does divine law, godly law, biblical law, how does that work? Well, I would say that the purpose of divine law 
right, is to maintain a healthy relationship with God. God instituted the laws. We just studied the book of Hebrews as a church together. He instituted all of these laws so that he could have a relationship with his people. I want you to think about it even before that, though. Think about the Garden of Eden when God first created the world. This is a a plug for our worldview class, right? As God created the entire world, he gave a law. Don't eat from that tree. And the purpose, right, the reason he said that is so that we can have this relationship with one another, so that I can walk with you in the garden and experience this life with you. That's why I want you to obey this law that I've instituted. And so the purpose of divine laws, much like that of human law, is to create peace, but it's with God. We want to have a peaceful relationship with God. There is a law, and God has always given us a choice. From the very first time a law was instituted, he gives us a choice, and our choices are powerful. Now, if that's the purpose, what is the content of divine law? Well, the content of divine law is to treat God as he is. These laws are intended for you to see him, to treat him, to view him, to interact with him as he is, as the creator God. That's the purpose of it, so that you would see him and that you would worship him and that you would view him, that you would love him with all of your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength. That's the purpose. Like That's the content of the law. The purpose is to have the relationship. The content drives you into that relationship. That's why those laws are given. So when we sin, when we make our choice to sin, when I decide that I want to sin and engage in something that I should not be engaged in, when I make that decision, two things are happening. I'm one, I'm choosing to engage in this activity. And oftentimes I've heard many preachers say this, and I think I agree with it. If if sin is, the the thing about sin is that it's enjoyable. So if you're engaged in sin and it's not fun, you're not trying. Like, you're not, that's it. Like, sin is fun. That's That's the whole nature of it. It draws us in. So you're engaged in this activity that is breaking God's law, but at the same time you're making a choice for sin. You're making a choice against God. And in that moment, you're no longer viewing him the way he has said we are to view him. You've broken that law. So what's the consequence of breaking that law? Well, the consequence of breaking divine law is an unreconciled relationship with God. Now that I've chose to sin, I no longer have this tightness with him, this relationship with him. It's been severed. I no longer am in relationship with him. I'm no longer connected to him. There's damage that's been done between my relationship with him I no longer see him. And so what it's saying is, what Colossians is saying is the need for reconciliation means in those moments, I'm saying I can be my own king. I can be my own creator. I can hold my own life together, God. But what does Colossians 1 teach us? He's king. He's creator. And he's the only one that can hold it together. And so it's as if the law is saying, hey, you have to view God the way he wants to be viewed. And we're saying, no, I can do this on my own. And friends, we make decisions day in and day out where we refuse to see God the way that God wants us to see Him. And this becomes the difficulty. I like the way Tim Keller says it. He says this, You wouldn't even need the Old Testament and all of the laws and sacrifices to know this. To know this about God. That when you break the, you have a severed relationship with Him. He says this, In fact, Romans 1 tells us that every human being, every single human being knows this truth, that if there is a God who created me, then I owe that God a debt that I cannot possibly pay until and still have anything left over. I owe that God a debt that I can't possibly pay and live. I owe that God a debt that I cannot possibly make good on. There is a debt that must be paid to cover the severed relationship, a reconciliation that must take place 
And what we learn is that we are powerless to do this for ourselves. We are in a broken relationship with God. Merry Christmas. Look, there's been a lot of things in my Christian life, and again, I'm in reflection mode, that have taken me a long time to come to understand. It's a maturity process. Maybe you've experienced that. You study something about God. You interact with God. You get deeper into His Word. What I'm learning, 2018 for me was a year where I was more in the Word than I was any year before it, and I began to see, man, it just shapes every single part of my life. Every part of it. But you have to choose to be in it. You cannot assume it. This has to define you and your thoughts and your actions, and it takes time. And there are some things that are complex and they're difficult, and it took me a long time to come to understand it. But this, what we've talked about today, is not one of them. It's not. This makes perfect sense. That God instituted a law for the purpose of having a perfect relationship with us. We broke that law, and we need to be reconciled. This is the story of Christmas. That the rescue mission to pay the debt that we cannot pay on our own started Christmas morning when, Colossians 1 tells us, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in him. All the fullness of God pleased to dwell in that baby so that through him, the debt that we can't pay could be paid so that we could be reconciled to God once and for all. See, when I think about this and I look at the kind of the Christmas story, there's really two characters that come to mind who were presented with this message of the gospel, this message of reconciliation, and they had a choice to make. First character is King Herod. Herod is called Herod the Great. And the way he lived and made choices in his life was that anything that was a threat to his power or his wealth, he was going to eliminate. Right? And so he's told the Messiah has been born. You can come and you can meet the Messiah and instead of choosing, in that moment, he had a choice to make. And instead of choosing to come and really meet the Messiah, he devised the plan to come and completely do away with the Messiah, who he viewed as a threat to his power. But the Magi wouldn't let him. And then the text in Matthew 2 tells us that he got so angry. It says this, when Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious. And he gave orders. I want you to think about this. He gave orders to kill all of the boys in Bethlehem in its vicinity who were two years old and under based on what he had figured out about how old this Messiah would be. He wanted everything done. Look, he had a series of bad choices. He was desperately trying to seek his power and glory. You look at this guy's life, choice after choice, trying to reconcile what was broken inside of him. And he had this choice to make. And, and history tells us this guy had a chronic issue with making bad choices over and over and over again. He would make these bad decisions over and over and over again. History tells us he had 11 or 12 wives. But he wrote that the only one he ever loved was named Miriam. But somewhere along the way, he viewed Miriam as a threat to his throne, so he had her killed. He had a son with Miriam, and he, as the son grew, he thought this son was going to threaten his power as well, so he had his son killed along with two other of his own sons, killed choice after choice after choice. His barber apparently told him, killing your sons isn't a good idea, so guess what he did to the barber? Killed him. When it came to him being on his deathbed, he knew that nobody in Israel was going to mourn for him. There'd be nobody crying, because he'd killed all the people that might have. So he rounded up 70 of the most prominent leaders in Israel and locked them in a room. And he gave orders that the moment he died, they were all to be executed. So somebody in Israel would cry on the day he died. 
choice after choice after choice. And Herod had an opportunity to choose Jesus. But he chose himself. Contrast that with Mary. When we meet her, she's a young girl. She's got no money. She's got no power. She gets visited by an angel. And the angel tells her, you've found favor with God. And you're going to give birth to the Messiah. And this pregnancy is going to happen by way of a miracle through the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, she's got a choice to make. And in my opinion, when her choice is compared to that of Herod's, when he's told the Messiah has been born, hers seems a little bit more difficult to make. Holy Spirit, miracle, pregnancy, this is unbelievable. How in the world? She's got a choice to make. And the text kind of reveals how she came to this choice. She takes these promises and she kind of absorbs them into her. There are two words that you notice in, in what describes it. The text tells us this, but Mary treasured up all of these things and pondered them in her heart. Very significant words when it comes to our choices and decisions that we make. To ponder something means that you really take it seriously. That you deeply consider it. It's not an easy choice, but you know it's a choice you have to make. And so you're pondering it, and you're thinking through it, and you're letting it sink in. Many of us, we think of the word ponder like we're sitting on our back porch with like a, a Bible and a, some herbal tea, and we're just pondering all the goodness. That's not the word that's used here. The word that's used here is also used of the prophets when they would deeply try to discern what God was doing and what he was wanting to say to the people. This is the word used of Mary when she's pondering all that God has said and all that God is doing. She's really pondering it. So on top of that, she treasures it. And see, when you treasure something, that means you really care about it. You find great value in what has been given to you. You delight in it. You savor it. Here's what I've found in my life, and I don't know about you, but I think it's probably true for all of us. A general rule, whatever's going on in your life, friends, and I know in a room like this, just think about it. In a room like this, we're not all on the same page with what's going on in our lives. But we're sitting in this room with all of these different experiences, and there's some things that are just true. Whatever it is that's going on in your life, your choices will tend to reflect what it is that you have habitually pondered and treasured. If I watch you make decisions and choices in your life, it's going to reveal to me how seriously you've been treasuring and pondering up truth in your life. It's just revealed in our decisions and our choices that we make. It could be your money, it could be your grades as you finished a semester and you want to make sure that you did good and that's all you've been consumed with. It could be the way that you look, your health, your success. It could be all kinds of different things that you're really treasuring up and pondering as you enter into this chaotic Christmas season. We're two days away and some of you are like, church is almost over and I'm not done shopping. That's what I'm pondering, Rob. And I'm treasuring the fact that I don't have enough treasure to pay for these toys. Like, that might be where you're at. Or it could be that you've slowed down a little bit. You see, we're, we're, we don't do a good job of slowing down. I heard a preacher this past week say, it's kind of like going 85 miles an hour on the interstate. Don't lie, you do it. You're going 85, right, when the speed limit's 70, and then you get off on an exit ramp, and the speed limit's 30, and you immediately feel your blood boil. Like, how in the world do people come up with these laws? Ah, and all you want to do is, like, not go that slow. Why? Because we are completely conditioned, particularly in our country, to go fast and to hurry. But to treasure and to ponder requires that we slow down. And so this Christmas, you have a choice to make. Herod or Mary. Consumed with yourself 
And everything that you need and everything that you want, or are you pondering up and treasuring all that God's doing, all that he's been doing, all that he will do? At the end of the day, the choice is yours. Remember the words of Crawford Loritz. I think they're true. Every single thing in your life that will happen of significance will be the product of your choices and decisions. And so today and tomorrow, this Christmas, my question for you is what will you choose? Let's pray.